but I'm just going to, I'm going to dive right in with, with quick introduction and, and then I'll pray because we're going to be dealing with a lot of other texts here this morning. But um, for four weeks now, we've been essentially giving ourselves to this magnificent subject of, of glorifying God. Uh, and, and this morning, we're going to bring our discussion to a close. We've been asking how do we, as people created in God's image, created to glorify him, how do we actually do it? What does it actually look like? Let's rip that out of the abstract where we often leave it and start to bring it into the details of our lives. Does the Bible help us do that? Does the Bible give us pointers in the direction of what glorifying him actually looks like? What it means and how we do it. Um, I've been doing kind of a word study that's, that's, that's argued, yes, there are plenty of texts that point us to specific things we can do uh, to glorify the Lord. We've looked at seven different ways, and today, this morning, God willing, we're going to look at five, which is why I'm trying to get us in right away. So let's uh, pray. God, we quiet our hearts. We quiet our minds. We want to be still and know that you are the Lord. There's so much talk going on up in my head all the time. So much concern, so much thinking, so much uh, planning, strategizing. God, we just want to quiet and give you the mic. We want you to speak, Lord. We want you to come and address us as your people. We want to know more about who you are. We want to know more about why we're here. You say we've been created to glorify you. We want to know what that looks like and we need your help to do it. God, I pray that you would use this sermon. You would use our time and your word here. To start working that out in your people. We know that we come into our own. We know that we come alive. When we come under you. And live not for our glory. But for yours. So would you meet us here. And accomplish all these things. By your grace. For your glory. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Take some water sorry. Okay, so I mentioned we've had um, seven before, and you'll see those seven kind of on the bottom end counting up uh, on your handout. But now we are in number eight. And what I have here is that we can glorify God by spreading the good news about him. We can glorify God by spreading the good news about him. Um, in John 16, 13 through 14, um, we, we, we can listen here to how Jesus speaks to his disciples about the Holy Spirit's ministry. This is John 16, 13 through 14. Jesus says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, here's the key. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, again, remember, we're looking for what does it mean to glorify God? Well, here we get another one. We see this connection between speaking God's word to others, and glorifying him. Because Jesus is saying, listen, disciples, here's what's going to happen. The Spirit's going to come and he's going to glorify me. How do we know he's going to glorify me? Well, he's going to take what is mine, namely my words, what he hears me speak, and he's going to give it to you. So therefore, one of the ways you and I can glorify God, we assume, therefore, is to take Christ's words and to give them away. 
to others, to speak them to others. It's not about me and me getting my voice, my opinions out there. It's about me speaking his words after him. I heard, I'm telling you. So in the context, Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit, but um, surely I, I think this connection would apply to us as well. What we hear him speak, that's what we must declare to others. I don't know if you remember that text in Matthew 10, 27, but it's still relevant for every disciple. Jesus says this, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So I'm going to give you words, disciples, apostles, Christians. And what you hear me say, you take those words and you proclaim them to the world. And when you do that, you glorify me. You glorify me. Now, surely I think we are um, supposed to think here uh, in particular of our proclaiming the gospel. Um, Though every word of God is important and worth repeating and reiterating for the nations, uh, surely I think the gospel is kind of the leading edge of the word of God. It is the, you know, Paul would say of first importance is this gospel. And we can look at Paul's ministry and see this where he says in 1 Corinthians 1.17 about his own ministry, Christ did not send me to baptize, but what? To preach the gospel. And he goes on later in, in, in chapter 9, verse 16, and says, Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Like, I gotta, I gotta say it. I gotta get these words out. And what we see uh, in Galatians, when he's talking about how he received the gospel, we, we get it. It's, it's just what's going on here with the Holy Spirit. This idea of it's been given to him. And he's giving it away, Um, just like the Holy Spirit will take the son's words and bring them forward. Now, this is what Paul's doing, because Paul says in Galatians 1, 11 through 12, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, what I heard... I'm declaring to you, namely, this gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ crucified. And I determined to know nothing among you but that. Um, There is on one occasion, Paul is preaching this gospel to the Gentiles in Antioch. And this this is what we hear. I'm going to make that final connection between preaching the gospel and and glorifying God. Because in Acts 13.48. When the Gentiles heard it. We read. They began rejoicing. And glorifying the word of the Lord. As Paul's preaching about grace. The Jews are rejecting it. And he says man. Then it's going to the Gentiles. Because the sun is going to be lifted up as a light. Even under the Gentiles, the Gentiles in Antioch hear it and they glorify the word. And if they're glorifying the word, we're supposed to understand they're glorifying the God who spoke the word. And so speaking his words, sharing the gospel, proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ is one of the critical ways that we can, in fact, glorify him. Glorify him. But here's the question we have been asking again and again and again. How? How does my speaking or spreading the good news about him uh, to the world glorify him in the world? What does my speaking about him in this way uh, uh, say about him to the world? Um, I've been trying to just put these into little sound bites. And again, you'll see it on your handout. There are many things that it says, but one thing to put it simply would be God is the answer. God is the answer. When we go into the nations and declare the gospel in this way, we are saying God is 
the answer. All that you're worried about, all that you're struggling with, all that you need saving from, God, Christ, is the answer. He is not just a tribal deity, a parochial savior, a household God, one of many options. He is, like uh, Peter would say, the, the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever had evangelistic conversations with people, and, and, and oftentimes they end this way, sadly. They end with, you know, I'm glad that works for you. I'm glad you found something that's great for you. But Jesus is not for me. Now, we're not going to push and shove and, 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 and try to get them in a headlock to, to receive our Savior. But we are going to... Uh, 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 What's the word? We're going to kindly disagree. Because that's the whole reason we're sharing is to say, no, 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 it's not just for me. This is not just my answer or our little Christian answer. This is the answer. God is the answer. And when we feel that in our bones so that we say, woe is me, if I don't preach this, we glorify God as the answer. I don't know if um, you've been struggling with this idea um, as we've kind of been going along in this little mini series uh, that we've been created to glorify God, that God created us to glorify him. I don't know if that's rubbed you the wrong way. I mentioned that in the first message. I want to deal with it a little bit more here for a moment to kind of rub you the wrong way that God creates us for his glory. Like that feels kind of self-absorbed god you know that feels kind of selfish that feels kind of arrogant i'm here for your glory that feels that doesn't seem very humble and kind but what we need to see and i'm going to help us see here is that these uh two things um namely god's loving us and his glorifying himself and are created to glorify him are not in opposition they're not in opposition indeed if i could put it somewhat scandalously he is all about himself hear me on this he is all about himself one sense at least because he's all about us let me tell you what i mean i'll put an image on this it's helped me if this fallen world is like a desert, then God is like an oasis. Okay? In a world full of mirages, you remember like the cartoons and things where there's like a mirage and it's, it's like, it looks like there's something great there. There's water, I know it, come on! It's nothing but sand again. I lived in Arizona, there was a mirage down the end of every street. You would see it. Like, there's water! No, it's not. It's just heat waves and you're like losing water and getting dehydrated. But in a world full of mirages, God is the oasis. In a desert full of thirsty people, God is the oasis. Now let me ask you, this is the question. Is it self-absorbed? Is it arrogant? If you're the oasis to say, now tell everybody about me. Now, go and spread the news about me. Enhance my re reputation in the world. If you're the oasis, is that wrong? No way. If you're Nick Weber, is it wrong? Yes. Because Nick Weber is no water source for the world. I'm just another thirsty, desperate creature like you. But we're talking about the Creator. The sustainer of all things. So when he says you exist for my glory, go and enhance my reputation in the world. He is not saying because it's all about me and I don't care about anyone else. He's saying I need them to know about me so they can come and drink. Because I love them. It's like what I read in my devotions this last week in Psalm 36. He's the fountain of life. And he gives the children of mankind drink from the river of his delights. That's who God is. 
So if I exalt myself, yeah, it's wrong. If God exalts himself, he's the fountain of life. He's saying, I got to be lifted up so that all the people I created, all the creatures, all of this can be sustained, can find life and joy and satisfaction. So again, scandalously, he is all about himself, but at least in one sense, it's because he's all about us. He wants us to come and be satisfied with him. Glorifying God, therefore, is the most loving thing we can do for a people in a sun-chapped and drought-weary world. So one of the most um, plain, uh, appropriate ways we can glorify God is what we've been looking at here. Telling people, simply telling people about him. Like, there is an oasis. Using our words to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. One of the clearest ways we can glorify him and invite them to the water and drink. Let me go to uh, number nine here. So number eight, we glorify God by spreading the good news about him. Number nine, we glorify God now, we see, by welcoming one another by welcoming one another. I love this one. Uh, this is especially good in light of all the turmoil you're seeing with different ethnicities and stuff in the news these days. Um, but we've got to know that the early church, uh, <laughs> sadly, I mean, some people want to sugarcoat it and see it in a different light. The early, ch- early church was just as troubled and, and struggling as our church today. It would seem in many ways um, there were still all these divisions. There were still these just disgruntled stuff going on, bitterness and judgmentalism and these sorts of things. The church was dealing with because it's the same flesh that was filling those pews that fill our pews today. And though the spirit gets uh, in us and, and starts to work change, there's quite a bit of change that needs to be worked. And he's still doing that. But in the early church, perhaps no finer example of this sort of, uh, this sort of troubling kind of tension and bitterness and division uh, could be found. Uh, perhaps no finer example is found than that in which uh, we see with the Jews and the Gentiles and the relationship that entailed there. Um, Jews, if you recall, were kind of God's people from the beginning. Um, God kind of chose them out and they had this kind of, this kind of air about them. Like we are God's chosen people. And I suppose that that's true, but it kind of went to their head in the wrong way. They forgot why God chose them out of the world. He chose them out of the world for the sake of the world. He set them apart from the nations, not in spite of the nations, but for the sake of the nations. God blesses Abraham so that Abraham can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Well, they kind of forget this like you and I are, are prone to do. They kind of forget this. And, and, and uh, even when the Gentiles start flooding in in the New Testament, they start flooding in to the people of God through the person of Jesus Christ. The Jews kind of sit back and go, all right, all right. All right. If God's saying, if Paul and Peter and these guys, if James is even saying, this is going on right now, this is what Yahweh's doing, well, fine. But let's be real. They're always going to be second-class citizens, right? I mean, we had this from the beginning. We were tight with Yahweh from day one. These guys are kind of always going to be the add-ons, the grafted-in branches, the secondary, plan B. We're plan A. Varsity. Now, the blade could cut actually in the early church in the opposite direction as well. So if the Jews have the blade in one hand cutting this way, down on the Gentiles, well, the Gentiles actually were cutting back. Because for the Gentiles, they're coming out of pagan culture. They're coming out of, of you know, the, 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 the idolatrous stuff that's going on, like we'll see in, in Rome and whatnot. We're going to deal with the, the church in Rome for a moment. But they're coming out of that. They don't have this tradition. They don't have the Old Testament necessarily and that understanding of Leviticus and all these laws. And they're kind of thinking, man, what's up with these Jews? 
What's up with the kind of backwards, behind the times things that they're all struggling? Their, their consciences are all struggling with like what food they're going to eat and what day we're meeting on and all this stuff. What's their deal? And so the Jews were trying to move on in God's plan, but they, they were struggling. Their, 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 their uh, faith was weak. And they still felt bad. Like, I'm not sure if that's kosher. I know Peter said we could eat it, but pig, really? Bacon? It smells good. I don't know. You know, they're scared. They're worried. And the Gentiles are sitting there going, man, what's up with these guys? Looking down their noses at the Jews. Well, Paul would not have any of this. It doesn't matter what. From what side the blade is is being swung or cutting, he sees a reproach to the gospel going on here. The gospel of grace that unites, not divides. Paul sees Jew and Gentile and the, the differences there and the divisions there as a reproach. To the gospel he's proclaiming. And so he calls, he calls these, uh, these guys to come out here for a moment. He's saying, wait a minute, we gotta talk about this. Romans, uh, 14 through 15. He sees this going down in the church in Rome and he's dealing with this there. And he, he's exhorting and, he, and he's encouraging and he's challenging. And then in, in kind of the capstone to his argument in Romans 15, 7, he says this. This is the text that connects what i'm saying to glorifying god therefore jew gentile welcome one another as christ has welcomed you for the glory of god you hear that God's glory is on the line. When you guys are backbiting and and looking down your nose and acting all superior and dividing and choosing who you're going to hang out with, who you're going to eat with, God's glory is on the line. Paul would have to call out Peter on this point. Do you realize that? Because even Peter struggled with this when the Jewish leaders came, these Judaizers who, who kind of still wanted to see the Jewish people as superior. Peter stopped eating with Gentiles. And Paul goes, man, your life is not in step with the gospel. God's glory is on the line. And how you welcome one another. You might not have realized that. When you're picking friends or you're choosing who's going to come into your house or who you're going to talk to. God's glory is on the line. And when we welcome one another because of Christ, in spite of differences, in spiritual maturity, ethnicity, economic class or whatever, we glorify God, you guys. And the question again is, how? How does my welcoming you, you're welcoming me, glorify him? What does that say about him to the world? How does it enhance his reputation in this divided, fractured world that we live in? Man, God forbid that the church would look just as divided as everyone else. How does it glorify God if we we welcome one another in this way? I'm not going to be creative here. I think quite simply it says God is welcoming It tells the world that God is welcoming, that God is uniting, that God has a doormat or a a welcome mat out in front of his door for the nations. And it doesn't matter if you're black or white or if you're poor or rich or whoever you are, you are welcome here. Whoever comes to the son, he will in no way cast out John six, right? That's what it declares to the world when we drop that welcome mat out in front of our hearts, out in front of our homes. And we say, listen, brothers, sisters in Christ, if Christ has accepted you, I accept you. You hearing that? Here's one of the things I love so much about this church. We're, We're a small church. We have incredible diversity here. I mean, overwhelming diversity. It's awesome. It's amazing. 
I mean, uh, if you just step back and think about it, economic class, ethnicity, uh, various, you know, professions, old, young. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, and I think that this text gives us warrant uh, back in, in Romans 15, gives us warrant to, to think that we have a unique opportunity to showcase the glory of God here. We have a unique opportunity when we welcome one another in a way that perhaps the world will look at and go, listen, no, 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 no. There's lines here between that person and that person. There's lines here between this and that. What are they doing fellowshipping? What are they fellowshipping around, you see? What are they uniting around? What's uniting this kind of diversity? I think we have a unique opportunity to glorify God in this church. And I want us to steward it well. I want us to avoid the, the, the clicks and the siloing and, and to put our welcome mats out in front of our homes and out in front of our hearts. Because I do believe, I do believe that perhaps there is no greater testimony to the beauty of God and, and the truth of the gospel than this. That is, people welcome one another. That Jew eats with Gentile. That black eats with white. That rich eats with poor. That introvert eats, eats with extrovert. That engineer eats with artist. We got a guy here from Texas. He's not here this morning, but you know, the guys from Texas eat with guys from California. The guys from Africa eat with guys from India. The, 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 the things that could divide us are overcome by the one thing that unites us. Namely, Jesus Christ. Does that not glorify him? Just say, man, what is the deal with his grace? God throws his welcome mat out in front of his door for the nations to come in. Who are we to shut them out? All right. Number 10. Number 10. So we've seen that we can glorify him by spreading the good news about him. And now by welcoming um, uh, one another. But now we see, number 10, we can glorify him by fleeing from false pleasures for him. By fleeing from false pleasures for him. Um, the Corinthian church emerges from a, a pretty depraved cultural context. We don't have time to go into it, but all sorts of promiscuity, all sorts of idolatry. And the cultural baggage... Uh, unfortunately affects the, 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 the Christian church as it's emerging. And, and the, the Corinthians that are coming out of that lifestyle, well, they bring some of that with them. And um, one of the probably most flagrant examples of this is their kind of ongoing acceptance and even participation, it would seem, in sexual immorality. And sexual immorality. Well, Paul is going to deal with that in this church in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. And that's going to give us our next way that we can glorify God. He, he's talking to these Corinthians. He's saying, wait a minute, what is going on here? This is what he writes. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Here it is. So glorify God in your body. Did you hear that? I'll read that last part again. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, I'm not going to get into the complexities of Paul's argument here. I don't even know exactly what he's talking about, why sexual sin is a sin against myself more than any other sin. I'm not sure. I haven't looked into that. All I want to do is make the link for us between what we do with our bodies in glorifying God. Paul says, listen, glorify God with your bodies. And so what I'm hearing here, what I'm catching from this is that when you turn, when you flee from sexual immorality or any other sin, 
you are tempted by and you flee towards the son of God who loves you and purchased you with his blood. You glorify God. When you flee from this and say no. And you flee towards him and say yes. You glorify God. The question again is how? How does fleeing from sexual immorality or any other sin and fleeing towards him and preference for him, how does that glorify him in the world? What does it say about him to the people looking into Nick Weber's life or your life? What, is it, what does it say about our God? I think it says, in a word, God is pleasurable. God is pleasurable. Now, I purposely chose a word um, that I feel to some degree has been hijacked by the night. When you think about pleasure, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? God? Maybe. But I think a lot of times we kind of, we start to blush when we, when we use that word pleasure. Ooh, pleasure. Like that's a word that's kind of uh, been reserved for things like, like sex like pornography or like, like, I don't know, chocolate, gluttony. We, we usually connect that word with guilt. Do we not? I got my guilty pleasures as if pleasure itself is some sort of bad thing. As if to seek pleasure or to find pleasure automatically means you are in sin. You are guilty. I wonder if we realize, and I chose this word to bring this out. This is a thoroughly biblical word, a thoroughly biblical concept. And God created us to pursue pleasure only, not in all these lesser things, but in him. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. The psalmist says, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, God, are pleasures forevermore. So the Bible doesn't blush about our pursuit of pleasure. It only says, pursue pleasure in the right source. Desire the right object. And so connecting this to what we saw in first Corinthians, then when we forsake the false pleasures of sin, whatever it may be for the true and lasting and greater pleasure of knowing God fellowship with God, being close with him an eternity with him starting now, when we prefer that over this, do we not glorify him as better? Do we not make him look more pleasurable than the things of this world? As he really is. I mean, when the prostitute is knocking on your door in the middle of the night or on the other side of your computer screen. And you turn away in that moment. And you, you know, either click the deadbolt or click the mouse and say, no, I'll take God any day over you. Are you not declaring to the world in that moment and to the unseen spiritual realm, God is better than sex. And like Josiah, just turning to powder, one of the most cherished idols of our culture. I don't need it. If I have Christ, he's more pleasing than that. I'm actually not angry, just in case it sounds like I am. <laughs> trying to work on my tone, you know, it's my tone. I'm not angry. Why do I sound angry? I don't know. But of course, we could come at it from the other side, right? Unfortunately, we come at it from the other side. 
It's wonderful when we prefer God over these these fleeting pleasures of sin. Um, and when we do that, we declare him to be greater. But the opposite side, uh, we could come at our point that way as well. When we choose sin over him, does it not say this is better? I mean, when we say, yeah, come on in, prostitute. Come on in. Are we not saying, man, sure, I know the Bible says don't lust. I know the Bible says don't commit adultery. But you know what? (laughs) She is better. He is better than what God has to say. Or think of gossip. Yes, I know. Gossip tears people down. I'm supposed to use my words to edify and build up. But you know what? Gossip just tastes good on the tongue and it tickles my ears to hear a little bit more, to feel a little bit better than the next person. It's better than what? Quieting my... That's boring. Or anger, whatever thing. Yes, I know. Anger is like murder. And I know that it's harboring stuff in my heart. And I'm wanting to hurt the one for whom Christ died. But guess what? They had it coming. And sometimes I just got to vent. It just feels better to let it out than to hold it in and to bring it to the throne and say, God, vindicate me in your time and your way. So it can move. The other way, too, in those moments, are we not glorifying sin, saying that is the superior pleasure, right? And that happened. And that's sad. May it never be. May it never be, right? I'm going to suggest one final thing just as application here for you to think about. I think we get our sanctification backwards a lot of times. Here's what. If you've been raised in the church, here might be the approach your loving parents, but perhaps misguided parents had with you. We start with the no and we end with the yes. Here's what I mean. We start with the don't do this. Don't do that. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. All the no's, all the pleasures you need to avoid so that oftentimes Christianity, people just think it's a bunch of no's. Don't do that. Don't do this. We're defined by what we don't do. Rather than by what we say yes to. Christianity has one outstanding, outshining, radiant yes. And it is God. We have God. And and sanctification begins there. It's not, hey, say all of your no's and then maybe you'll get God. It's you get God now by the grace of Christ. And that is a superior pleasure. Say yes to him. He will satisfy you. And watch as sin just starts to fall off your life because it's exposed as the inferior pleasure that it is. Getting that? So our yes to God takes care of the no's. And if we're having problems with the no's, with uh, stopping this or that behavior, let's start looking at the yes. Am I delighting in him? Am I coming in him? Am I running in him? God, show yourself to me. Am I fellowshipping with your people? Am I even in your word? No wonder I'm not delighting in you. I'm not even putting you before me. This is how I might go late today. I'm sorry. This is how we should parent as well. I got to think about this. Is it not that we just want to parent by kind of controlling behavior? Like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Stop. Do this. I'm telling you, one of the most important things we need to do is put before them God and his glory as the object of supreme desire, the source of supreme pleasure, so that they understand why we're even saying no in the first place. It's because we get to have him. It's because he's so much better. It's not so that you look, we look good when we go to the restaurant or when we go to church or when whatever, friends come over. That's not going to last past their teenage years. Make sense? But if you give them a compelling vision of God, he can satisfy every desire you have. It's not going to be in toys or your peers loving you and stroking you. It's going to be in God, the acceptance that you have in him, the promises you have in him. Okay, end of rant. Eleven. Don't worry, number twelve is going to be really quick in case you're a word. Number eleven. 
we can glorify God by dying to gain him. We can glorify God by dying to gain him. This just takes all I was just saying. I kind of ordered this on purpose. This takes what I was just saying about fleeing from false pleasures of sin to its logical end. Because it's essentially saying, listen, we've laid our yes down for Jesus. We've laid our no down to sin and the world. Well, therefore, (laughs) there's going to come a time where we're going to have to hold that yes and hold that no, even through death. To the end. To the end. Now, um, you might remember. Let me get us into the text I'm thinking of here. You might remember um, the conversation that Jesus has with Peter. At the very end of John's gospel. Um, So Peter is denied Christ, right? The kind of classic failure of of man in his own strength. Denying Christ three times. Can't do it. Christ has has died. He's risen from the dead. He comes back to Peter. And you know he's he's got to put some things back in order in Peter's heart. And so he said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He restores him three times in that way. But then he ends. Oh, he ends on an ominous and somber and kind of gruesome note. And if you Peter, you're like, oh, you just ruined me. But here's how Jesus comes out of this conversation. In John 21, verses 18 to 19, Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Here's the parentheses and this is the point. Verse 19. This he, Jesus said, to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. So Jesus is referring here to what we understand from tradition would become Peter's own death by crucifixion. His his arms are going to be spread out. People are going to take him where he doesn't want to go and and, and dress him. It's interesting. You you think at first, like, is Peter going to be in like an elderly home or something? I don't understand. That's why John inserts the parenthetical note. No, no, no. I'm talking about death here. I'm talking about death here. Jesus is talking about death. And this death of Peter's will be his means of glorifying God. The question is, again, how? How would Peter's death, how does being killed for Christ glorify God? What would it say about God to the world? Again, kind of connected to where we came before. I think it says that God is treasure and not just any treasure. God is supreme treasure. God is life. God is worth it all. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Not loss. Oh, weep and sorrow and I lost it all. But gain because I get Christ in a fuller way. And so death Man, glorifies him as supreme treasure. Now, the key to my interpretation here is actually found in the way Jesus comes out of this brutal, brutal conversation with Peter. After talking about his death in this way, did you catch how it ended there in, in the last part of verse 19? After saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. In other words, in other words, yes, all the suffering is bad. It's going to, it's going to be hard. It's going to get real. But remember why you're doing it. Because you get me. Because I am worth it all. I am the treasure at the end of this. I am your life. Now, Peter seems a bit freaked out about all this at first. Um, and that's why he, he's kind of asking about John. You know, you know that scene where he's like, Dude, he see, he's like looking for another disciple. Who's like, he's like, isn't anybody else in this with me? This sounds brutal. What about John? What about him over there? Do you got like some sort of brutal end game for him as well? And Jesus just looks up and goes, what is it to you? 
Follow me. You keep your eyes on me. That's what it's all about. But Peter's freaking out. But it seems like near the end of his life, he gets it. Here's what I wanted to show you before I apply this to us. He gets it at the end of his life. We see in 2 Peter 1.14, he's writing about probably this conversation he had with Jesus. And he realizes that it's, hap- it's about to happen. He realizes that it's coming. And he says in 2 Peter 1.14, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Now you look at that and you don't see anything there. <laughs> Unless you have the ESV, which I think they make a little note about what the word for body is there. It's different in the Greek than the standard word. Peter chose a different word here for the putting off of his body. He chose a word that could be translated tent. Tent. Hang with me on this for just a moment. I know you've been with me a while. But have you ever gone camping? Anybody going camping? I'm not talking about glamping, right? We got glampers here. That's not Silicon Valley. You guys, yeah, you guys want to go glamping. That's what I'm saying right there. That's my girl. Yes. Tent camping. I'm talking about, so here, here's how tent camping usually goes down. Now, I love it. So this is not usually my experience. I could do it forever. But, you know, for most people, here's how it goes down. You're all excited about, we're going camping. We're going to be out. We're going to rough it in the woods. On the front end, you're jazzed about it. Well, guess what? After night one, what happens? Usually you've been like shivering through the night. Maybe it was raining and the water's like running under your tent, right? You wake up and your back feels like a semi ran over it overnight. You know, and like you go to look for your food and like a bear or a raccoon got into it. You're ready after a day or two of tent camping to go home. I want to get out of the tent and go home. You catching where I'm going with this? Peter starts talking about his life in such a different way, his earthly life in such a different way. I know that the putting off of my tent is coming. I know that all this temporary stuff is about to give way to everlasting glory. The permanent, the home is coming. So think about this with me. Think about who we're talking about here. Peter, who to save his own skin, couldn't even stand up for Jesus before a little servant girl. At the end of his life, after following Jesus and seeing his worth and having the spirit open up his eyes more, at the end of his life, now you want to know what he has to say about that skin? It's just a tent. It's just a tent. And it's almost like he just mocks his persecutors. What are you going to bring it on? What are you going to do? You kill me, all you're doing is ripping me from my tent and putting me in a palace. Awesome. That's how people who have seen the glory and the worth of Jesus talk. And we might say, we might say, well, that's, that's great. I'm happy to read this conversation Jesus had with Peter on the Sea of Galilee. But, uh, you know, thank God that was just him. And I get to live my nice, comfortable life and then die and go to glory. Well, I wonder if you realize Jesus essentially has that same conversation with everyone of, of, uh, who would claim to be or would want to be his disciples. Do you remember what he says in, in Luke 9, um, 23? If anyone, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and what? Take up his cross daily and follow me. I mean, we're not talking here about a verse that the, that the people in the first century would put on their coffee cups or embroider on their pillows. This would send shivers down their spine because they knew what the cross was for. And Jesus now is not saying, I'm just going to take the cross. He's saying, you get it on your back. This isn't just his blood we're talking about anymore. This is my blood. Take up my cross. But there it is again, and follow me. We do it because of the great me at the end of that sentence, in our sights. Follow me so that all of this. So what? To live as Christ, to die as gain. If I get the me, I get it all. And the people that live like that, 
The people that see the value of Christ to be worth more than life itself are people that will glorify him as supreme treasure. Let me bring it home with number 12. By confessing him as Savior, we glorify God. Now here, Savior and Lord, I should say. Perhaps you, you've come this far and, and you're now just feeling like, well, great, Nick, you just piled a load of guilt on us. You told us we were created to glorify God, and I feel unbelievably inadequate at ever doing so. Thanks, Nick. You're telling me I got to hold true to the end like this, and maybe you're feeling like, I got no chance. I got no shot at this. Let me tell you something. You're actually positioned perfectly to glorify God in yet one final way. Namely, by confessing Jesus as Savior and Lord. Because here's the truth of the matter. You're exactly right. You and I cannot do this. But I'll tell you something. If you read through those 12 things, this is Jesus' resume. This is his life. He feared God above all else. He hoped in him against hope. He prayed to him constantly as, as his father. He, 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 he would give himself to death and hold firm to the end. He would do all of this. And not just for himself, but for, in particular, you and I. Not only so that he could forgive our sin, but so that he could come in and by his spirit live that life out again in and through us. So that we, his children, will be with him where he is in glory. We will make it because of him. And so the final way we can glorify God, you guys, is to confess that. We just need him. We need his death. We need his resurrection. He's Savior and he is Lord over all. I'll just close by reading Philippians 2 and we'll pray. I get this from Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. That's it for us, the great confession. The great confession, Jesus, we cannot do this. It's why you came down. It's why you came down. So God forbid that we take from this another way to try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. No, we throw ourselves onto you, Jesus. You are Savior. You are Lord. It's your cross, your resurrection. It's your indwelling life that will allow us to start to Reflect your glory more. Glorify you more in the world. And even as we grow in this, you are glorified even further because it's you at work. God, please help us as a church to bring glory to you. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.